what social movement theory allows us to do is to sort of tune in on various aspects of social movements and explain these aspects in depth. Why do people take to the streets? Why does the elites, for instance, respond in the way they do? Why does protest X succeed while protest Y does not? Which sources of communication do social movements use? All these kinds of questions, I think, we can tune in on an aspect of social movement theory and find some very interesting angles, hypotheses, explanatory frameworks that can help us understand it. I sat down with Anne-Christine Ron from Aarhus University in Project SEPAD to discuss popular mobilization, protests, sectarianism, social movements, and the process of framing these. Contentions, repertoires, and politics is a very prevalent theme in different cases. We begin scratching the surface of it all in this episode. Welcome to the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode focuses on sectarianism and civil society, and we're taking a closer look at the case of Lebanon. I am very happy to be hosting Anne-Kirstin Ron for this. Hello, Anne-Kirstin, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, Petros. Nice to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Anne-Kirstin Ron is a PhD student at the Department of Political Science at Aarhus University. Uh, she's also part of the team on the project on sectarianism, rock proxies, and desectarianization, also known as Project SEPAD, and a guest researcher at the Danish Institute of International Studies. Her research focuses on how civil society can contribute to desectarianized socio-political life in divided societies, and in her dissertation, she looks into the various strategies of uh, anti-sectarian social movements in Lebanon and Bosnia-Herzegovina, and what they essentially use to oppose sect-based politics and promote political communities that transcend sectarian divides. With an offset in social movement theory, she investigates how choices of framing, movement organization, and contentious repertoires impact processes of mobilization, demobilization, and movement development. She also holds a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Copenhagen and a master's degree in international studies from Aarhus University. Academically, Anne-Christine has a great interest in intercommunal conflict, identity politics, social movements in non-democratic settings, and Middle Eastern relations. Okay, you have a very rich profile that I'm really happy to see. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to ask you very briefly now how you came to focus uh, on this specific topic from one fellow researcher to the other. Why is your focus on civil society? How come you're interested in the desectarianization of the political life in divided societies? Well, I've always been fascinated by civil society, I guess, um, and the way ordinary people organize around demands for political change, basically. Um, so my specific interests in divided societies, I think, started in... In about 2016, when I visited Lebanon, and at that time, there had just been a huge uh, protest movements against uh, a garbage crisis. A uh, new campaign was mobilizing at that time against the ruling elites in Beirut um, and was competing in the local elections. And I got familiar with the campaign. I met some of the people involved in it. And I asked myself, why do these people even try and challenge their elites? These elites are so... They have such a strong grip on power. 
They seem impossible to challenge. Why do these people try anyway? And how are they trying? And what are they imagining to get out of, of all this work they do to mobilize people um, around a demand for change? So I got very interested in these questions and I got deeper and deeper into them. And when I was done with my master's degree, I got the chance to write a PhD about the topic, which was very thrilling and very exciting. Um, but, but it all started, I think, with the personal encounter with, with these local activists uh, in Beirut. That's actually pretty exciting because uh, I've grown a lot interested in Lebanon because of those protests myself. I actually, uh, my master's thesis is focused on those very uh, protests. Uh, I did use a different um, framework, though, for when understanding those protests, because you've mentioned you're looking at, you know, how essentially civil society people themselves, they focus against uh, joining their forces against the elite. So you've, uh, you're using social movement theory for this, uh, from what I understand. Can you tell us a bit more how does uh, social movement theory help you explain uh, these uh, processes and what sort of hypothesis can we draw from such a framework when it comes to uh, civil society unrest? Yeah, I think that's a good question and a very important question. Like, Why do we choose the theories we choose and what can they help us with? Um, for me, social movement theory is quite a large, like a really extensive field actually of, of very different theories um, also with, with very different ontological and epistemological um, offsets. Um, and I think what, what social movement theory allows us to do is to sort of focus or tune in on various aspects of social movements and explain these aspects in depth. So why do people take to the streets? Why does the elite, um, for instance, respond in the way they do? Why does protest X succeed while protest Y does not? Which sources of communication do social movements use? All these kinds of questions, I think we can tune in on an aspect of social movement theory and find some very interesting angles, hypotheses, explanatory frameworks that can help us understand it. Um, now, one of the things I focus on in my research, for instance, is uh, framing which looks at the way social movements communicate. So for example, why do they use the slogans they do and which consequences does this have? And framing theory is based on the idea that people just don't take to the streets automatically whenever they're dissatisfied with something. It takes um, a process of convincing people. It takes a certain kind of communication to get people to think, oh wait, actually it does make sense for me to cancel work next Monday and go to a demonstration and call for the rights of a certain group or a specific political demand. And that's very uh, relevant for a country like Lebanon. As I explained before, the elite is so strong and it's the power is, is so concentrated in the hands of a very few people. So for a movement in Lebanon to actually convince ordinary citizens that it makes sense to go to the street, that takes a really, really good or effectful communication. They really need to convince people that it does make sense for a person with no power at all to actually go and block a road or sign a petition or join a march against those very, very powerful people. It's powerful itself as well, you know, this, this very act. 
And uh, what's really fascinating is that we keep on seeing this uh, revival on and off, not only in Lebanon, but also in other uh, countries uh, in the Middle East. We see this uh, slogan that emerged back from back in uh, 2011, which essentially calls for you know the people want the fall of the regime and exactly. this was uh something that was also transcribed in uh, the garbage crisis movement but before we get there because it's actually a very interesting conversation that i want to have i want to touch a bit more about the uh, concepts that we have here so how clear do you feel that the separation between civil society and social movements is and uh, do you feel that we can clearly see the distinction when we have these protests? Can we really separate civil society from social movements themselves? And is there a point where these two become blurry or do they get blended in each other during protests? Hmm. Well, that's a really good um, conceptual question. And there's plenty of debate uh, within the social movement literature about what defines a social movement, what are the limitations? Uh, what are the boundaries of social movements? When do they become civil society? When do they become something else? Um, I think generally the consensus in the literature is that there has to be some sort of sustained action over time for something to be a social movement. And that there also has to be people doing this action who somewhat somehow believe that they're involved with the same issues or topics but, but it is blurred. And I think if we look at Lebanon, uh, we can draw some important lessons uh, about what defines the social movement and, and how hard it is to define. One of the things obviously that characterized social movements um, and that sets social movements apart from let's say parties or individual NGOs is that there are a bunch of very different actors sometimes. So if we look at the October rising in Lebanon, for instance, uh, the latest protest that broke out in, in 2019, it consists of a lot of different segments and actors. So there are the people who are involved in more formal organizations. Uh, we have members from different NGOs uh, standing in the streets that could be the rights of disabled who've had their own tent uh, during the first part of the protest, organizations that work for freedom of speech and et cetera. And then there are people who are with political grassroots or even minor opposition parties that have emerged over the recent years in Lebanon. Uh, there are a whole bunch of leftist movements, for instance, uh, that show up in the streets with their own banners. Uh, they show what kind of organizations they have. They facilitate discussions and conversations. But, but the protest is also more than that. It's way more than that. There are tons of different networks of activists that don't identify as an organization or perhaps don't even identify as civil society as such. They just come together to organize roadblocks, demonstrations, marches, all kinds of activities. Um, and then you have the masses, those who aren't really affiliated with anyone or anything, but just come to the streets perhaps because they've invited, they've been invited by their friends They've seen something on Facebook or WhatsApp or even just underneath their windows. Um, so, so that's why it's, it's really hard to characterize sort of the organization of the protests as, as big as, as, the, as the Lebanese October uprising. And I think perhaps one of the advantages of this 
is that the October uprising has been able to say, look, we don't have a leader. There's no single person in this movement that can be pointed out uh, by the politicians, shamed, uh, delegitimized, and so on and so forth. Um, we, we claim to be all sort of under the same umbrella, but it doesn't help arresting just a few of us calling them the leaders. Um, and I think also what we can learn from, from Lebanon's movements against the sectarian system is that a social movement is not just a one-off event. It's not just a single demonstration. It's actually something that's built up over the years. Even at times where we cannot see it in the streets, it's still a social movement it's, and it's still there. So for instance, you mentioned it yourself, there's been uh, several other mobilizations or demonstrations or campaigns against the ruling elites in Lebanon. I think for those who are familiar with Lebanon, uh, we can point at some important events in 2011, where there was a protest that was inspired by the uh, so-called Arab Spring. There was the garbage protests in 2015 and the mobilization um, in the election campaigns in, in the elections in, in 2018 as well. So all these different mobilizations are episodes when where the movement has been visible. But in between these episodes, the movement and all its members, all those who've been involved, have also sat down and discussed their lessons. So what have they learned from being in a garbage protest? What can they do better next time? And I think that's sort of the life cycle of a, of a social movement. And that's also why the October uprising in 2019 did not come out of nowhere. It was a, it was an, a consequence of a longer buildup of a social movement that has changed over time, reconsidered its purpose and its tools, but it's nevertheless sort of the same movement. It's a movement that wants to get rid of the existing power structures in Lebanon or the existing regime and replace it with something new. Um, they might not agree on what exactly that is yet, but, but there's definitely this opposition that defines itself as being against the ruling elites and being dissatisfied with what the current politicians are doing to the country. Hmm. Like you, you've mentioned quite a few things here, and uh, it, it's uh, a, a, a lot to um, break down. But I want to stand on a couple of points hmm. here. The how the protesters continuously uh, work uh, d before, during, and after each protest. How they sit down intellectually to discuss these lessons that they've taken out of each uh, movement they've engaged with. It's quite interesting. It's quite important as well for the survival of this idea, this ideal that they hold uh, as well. I, I've seen it as well in Beirut. Like this discussion takes place in a very creative form as well. It could be like an exhibition or uh, even a small streets fe festival. B but... Um, before we get into much more detail into two protests that I want to focus on, I want to specifically focus on the 2015-16 protests that you've referred to and the October 2019 protests. First of all, just uh, out of curiosity, how you feel about the protesters themselves? Can, would you say that the majority of protesters act 
as you've described, essentially without any specific affiliations or ties? Or do they typically, and I'm talking about the majority and specifically in the protests that we've recently seen in Lebanon from 2011 onwards, would you say that they typically have some ties like the left, for example, or are they not really affiliated in most cases? Well, I would start by saying that whether they like it or not, most Lebanese, not all, but a big part of the Lebanese population has ties with a political party, a sectarian political party. It's really hard to avoid. Um, they don't necessarily have to be members of these parties, but because the, the system in Lebanon is so much based on political clientelism, everyone knows someone almost who has got a scholarship through a political party, whose mother has been uh, treated at a hospital because uh, of the help of a political figure. So the, the, the political parties permeate the, the Lebanese system. So it's almost impossible to be completely untied to any of them. That being said, uh, you have different affiliations among the protesters. So definitely there's a core of activists who are deeply into the anti-establishment uh, political grassroots. And that's an important part of the, of the October uprising. But there are also a huge part of the uprising that actually traditionally have been members or affiliated with the sectarian political parties, but have become increasingly dissatisfied with these parties. So when we understand the Lebanese political system and its opposition, we also need to understand that there's a blurred line between the two. So actually in the October uprising, there were a lot of people who were still members of the parties going to the streets. And that's been a big point of discussion. So where, how do we tell the real protester from the partisan? And actually some are saying that, look, it's, it's a good first step that we see partisans in the streets, not because we would like them to take over the protests, not because we're not uncritical of political parties trying to infiltrate or co-opt the protest movements, but because it's so hard to disentangle yourself from, from the political party you're affiliated with or your family is affiliated with, who provides you with welfare services, things that are essential to your survival, basically. It's so hard for you to cut that connection totally. So just seeing people who are still somehow, to some extent with their parties, going to the streets and criticizing those same parties is a huge thing. Um, so perhaps we can't expect more in the first round. Perhaps this is actually, you know, the, the first part of a stepwise change. Others of course are saying, no, it's, we need to, we need to say stop at some point. We need to try and discuss when, when does this become dangerous? When could, could partisans influence the protests in a way that serves to delegitimize the protests? But there is this, this other wing of the protest movement saying, look, actually it's not necessarily bad that we have people who have been affiliated with the political parties that join the streets. 
this is this was a fantastic introduction to this uh, next question I want to ask. And you're very, I like how you began by saying that whether they like it or not, they do have a tie or an affiliation. And uh, because we've seen very serious developments in recent history, and also because I want to touch more be, uh, upon the sectorization element as well. We've seen this more concentrated protests in Beirut in 2015 and 2016 during the garbage crisis as compared to the October 2019 protests, which were also taking place in other major cities. So in 2015-2016, we saw the participation and the formation of the so-called Ustink movement, Tlidere Hetun, as well as well-known figures from within civil society circles, and you've already touched upon this, and uh, a product of these protests, uh, arguably, was the Beirut Madianati campaign, so Beirut, my city, which stood uh, to uh, during the uh, Beirut municipality elections. It was very interesting to see the formation of this new campaign, this new movement which claimed to be secular, non-sectarian, and uh, they were competing with the mainstream parties. But there's also this notion, and something that was picked up during my research as well, that these protests ultimately failed, uh, of course because the mainstream parties essentially kicked out the competition, but also because the movement itself was hijacked by other poli- political actors. Uh, for example, uh, when uh, during the protests, it is said that some uh, political parties infiltrated the protests, for example, Hezbollah, and they posed as protesters, and they deliberately misled uh, the uh, movement, or they were there to cause conflict internally. How do you understand this process? in uh, between 2015 and 2016? Yes, indeed, uh, to begin with. Um, there has been major criticism of the 2015 protest and the 2016 Beirut Medinity campaign. And I think the one you mentioned, um, the hijacking by political parties is one of them. Another is that they sort of remained within the Beirut uh, middle-class circles. And I think the two sort of are intertwined. So I'll, I'll go a step back and try and explain um, why why did we see these failures and also try and nuance it a little bit um, because I'm not sure that I necessarily see those uh, two movements as inherently failures or having failed. Um, so if we begin with the 2015 protests, definitely they remained within Beirut, but we also need to understand that the problem of the garbage was also centralized in certain areas of the country. Beirut was one of them, Akkad was another one where there were protests as well. So there was a debate between the members of, of the movements whether to keep the focus on the trash, which was concentrated in Beirut and a couple of other areas, or make the protests more about the political system. If they'd done the latter, I think they might have been able to spread to the entire Lebanon because they could have touched, touched on problems that are shared by broader aspects of the Lebanese population. But there was this debate related to the choice of, of sort of broadening the movement. And one of the concerns of broadening the movement was exactly that it could get hijacked or co-opted by the political parties. 
So I must say also here, I'm not a Lebanese and I'm not a member of the movement. So all I can do is to repeat the arguments that I've been presented by activists I have um, engaged with or interviewed. So some of these arguments have been that if you make it too broad, then the political parties start coming in and claim, oh, we're also against corruption. We're also dissatisfied with the way the state is working, but it's because of the other political parties that we're in opposition to. And this is exactly what happened in 2015. The parties tried to infiltrate, they even tried to make their own demonstrations in support of the garbage movement. Um, some of the parties did, I would say. Um, but, but it would be, in my view, um, sort of a little bit wrong to say that the protest movement failed because it was hijacked by the political parties. I think there were a lot of aspects um, that contributed um, to not making this protest movement as big as the 2019. And I think here we come back to this learning process that I spoke about um, in previously in, in our conversation, which is that basically these activists had not gained very much experience on how to tackle a protest, how to make demands, how to formulate their statements, how to organize themselves. So they were trying out different options and some of them worked, some of them didn't. And what we saw in the 2019 protest was suddenly that activists realized now it actually makes sense to make broader demands. It does not make sense to centralize the protests. Um, it is too dangerous for many at least to have a centralized leadership. So in that sense, well, the 2015 uh, protests and also Beirut Medina did not succeed in appealing to the broad Lebanese population, but they definitely succeeded in giving activists a repertoire and a set of experiences to draw on for the next time they mobilized. Yeah, we, we did see that. We did see this response and we did see that essentially people learned from 2015 and 2016 but we've seen some analysts and perhaps some uh, people from you know the wider public who rushed in to call the October 2019 protests a revolution and my critique of this is that it was probably an intellectual revolution and this is because we've seen mass social gatherings that they took place before COVID-19. There was this very fascinating dialogue exchange taking place between citizens and academics at venues like The Egg. And we saw how the protests in the streets, they took shape and form, not so much from an aggressive standpoint, but people were there, as you've said, making broader demands, having a less centralized leadership, and compared to 2015, 2016, again, I've mentioned this before, we've seen this, uh, this movement spreading out to other major cities. I don't know personally if I was going to call this a revolution, though definitely intellectually speaking, it was something pro very much more profound. But, and uh, a key thing to note out of this is that we've seen the resignation of several key political figures. So on the one hand, you can say, you, you could argue that 
the, those uh, demands, as you've said, the way they were restructured and reformed, they had an impact. But to play the devil's advocate here, whether this has really been a revolution or not, as I've said, is disputed because I do feel that there's been a limited impact on the system. We've seen Hariri recently that he's designated to be prime minister again uh, in October 2020. And the, the, there's this uh, formation of the new government pending. So I'm just a bit, well, both upset, but also quite troubled by this development because on the one hand, I know that the movement is trying its best and the people themselves who wish to uh, get to go beyond the sectarian bar and try to attempt and reestablish themselves in unity. But this strong sectarian elements persist. So how do you understand this process? And uh, I, do you feel there, there was any success at all, no matter how limited that was? Well, I think that's a good and very important question to ask. It's obviously one of the main questions being asked at the moment where Lebanese poverty rates are rising, the country is basically falling apart economically. So has the uprising changed anything at all? I think that's a very valid question. I think perhaps one of the things that inspired me to think about this question and rethink the way I was thinking about it was uh, an article that was published on the one year anniversary of the protest movement um, by Lebanese Center for Policy Studies. So in this article, a group of scholars were asked to reflect on the accomplishments of the uprising. And one of the main points in their reflections was that we shouldn't assess the uprising only based on what it has achieved politically. Because if we do so, like you said, it looks pretty much like a failure. Nothing has really, nothing major has happened with the political system. It's still standing. A couple of new faces, of course, but in its core, it's, it's still there. There hasn't been an overthrow or like a sh major shift in power. But if we look at the social and mental change, um, which you also mentioned, here there are some important milestones which the uprising has reached. So one of the major accomplishments is the breaking of barriers between sects, regions, and classes that the revolution or the uprising um, has brought with it. For instance, it, this is one of the first time that people across class share a common demand and go to the streets in solidarity which, with each other. We have stories about people who go to the streets during the October uprising and for the first time meet people from a different social background than themselves. Because there are these silos in the Lebanese uh, society which contribute to keep people separated based on sect, based on class, based on region, and also destroy the solidarity and the cohesion of the Lebanese society. And also another accomplishment that I would like to highlight um, is that really for the first time, people have in, in huge numbers been out criticizing their political leaders without holding themselves back. So cursing, swear words, all kinds of you know, accusations have been used to a degree that has not been seen in Lebanon before. So people start talking about breaking the barrier of fear. People have started to notice that, yes, there is a reason to be angry here. Even though we've been with these leaders for years and years, 
things are really falling apart and it's okay to say that. So I think these are some of the, the accomplishments or the achievements that, that we need to be aware of when talking about the Lebanese October uprising, especially now when, as you said, um, the country is, is really on the brink of collapse and there's still no new government being formed. And it doesn't look like a new government of independent technocrats will be formed necessarily. Yeah, and I mean, the previous government under Hariri as well, it took nine months to be formed. And uh, at some point, I, th I think you also remember before Michel Aoun took over as president, that also took a long time. And we see that this is a constant element in forming the executive and um so you you will have to excuse a bit my cynicism but it, it feels that although we have to be making note of all these important developments and the positive that we can draw out of these developments there's still uh, a very problematic uh, system in place uh, especially when we when we take into consideration what happened over the summer uh, the explosion in Beirut and, you know, all these things, they fit in together. And uh, I, I don't know, uh, do you do you feel there's any glimpse of, of hope for, at least in the long run, for Lebanon? Do you feel that there's, a, there's much more space, much more room for growth and for people to reclaim a new political system? Uh, because we've seen that there's this constant repetition of you know this replicating the same pattern how much does this pattern can take absolutely well i think there's both a yes and no to this question um definitely i have seen some really convincing stories of hope and despair and i think perhaps one of the major stories that i'd like to highlight is all the various neighborhood initiatives that grew out of the beirut explosion so in the wake of the explosion, what we saw is, like you mentioned, the state was largely incapable of providing um, aid to those in need, rebuilding the city, so on and so forth. And instead, uh, various groups of citizens took over and started planning their own rebuilding initiatives. And these groups are in part drawn out of all those people who were involved in the October uprising, but it was also just ordinary citizens coming together and making new organizations, which we can hope will survive and keep working on various initiatives. So actually in, in the wake of the explosion, although it was catastrophical and destroyed so many people's life and property, something new and innovative grew out. There are also stories about new media platforms and I'd like to say Megaphone is perhaps one of the major examples of this that grew out of the October uprising and all the scandals uh, that happened uh, throughout this uprising. So Megaphone was, was covering the protests, but they also made investigative journalism that focused on all the things that, all the political scandals, all the cases of corruption and neglection that we see around the Lebanese society. But of course, the no side of the question is also important to be aware of. I think I have two major concerns um, looking at Lebanon right now. And the first concern is that people who have the resources to do so will leave the country. And we already see people leaving in, in great numbers um, since the October 
or sorry, since the Beirut um, explosion happened, I have come across numbers saying that around 100,000 people left Lebanon. I haven't been able to verify these numbers yet, but there's no doubt a huge number of people have fled the country and decided to start a new life somewhere else. So that's one of my concerns that, you know, the resources will, will simply float out of the country and not come back. Um, and my second concern is that people in other spheres of society will become increasingly desperate and that those who have dared to criticize their political leaders previously during the first stages of the protest will have to, out of fair need, turn towards the politicians again and ask for help simply because they have nowhere else to go. So what I fear is that the political parties would start exploiting all the poverty, all the need to gain back the political followers that they lost um, during the, the October uprising. Which of the two scenarios and how much of each scenario will, will happen, I'm not the right person to ask and perhaps no one can tell how exactly it'll go. But, but it is very much a tipping point right now, I would say in Lebanon. Sadly, we're not... As researchers, as analysts, we can't really predict with great accuracy what happens in the future. Both of these are very realistic scenarios. It's also quite scary, as you've said, to you know consider the possibility of a second scenario. But it, it's good to know that you know even amidst all the chaos, amidst all these uh, concerns, we do know the reality of the situation and hopefully we'll be able to learn again more from that, obviously without uh, without inflicting any greater despair or catastrophe than what has already been inflicted. But I want to ask you, though, just your part of the Project SEPAD, and I want to ask specifically what your contribution to the project is, and then later on, what your future plans for your research are. I know Project SEPAD, I know quite a few people from the team. It's a really cool project to engage with, and I'm sure that you're quite excited about it as well. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, indeed, you're right. It's a very exciting project, and I'm thrilled to be part of it. Um, so obviously, I contribute to the desectarianization part of SEPAD, and I help looking at movements that seek to challenge sectarian divisions and theories, theorize about them. Um, I think an important thing to say here is that we don't know much about what these movements are. It's a very new field of research. So I think perhaps one of my contributions is also just to shed light on how can movements against sectarianism look like? Who are the people behind these movements? How do they see themselves? And what kinds of actions do they take? What kinds of strategies do they have? And what kinds of challenges do they face? So very, very initial, you know, mapping of, of these movements. Um, of course, I, I contribute with empirical knowledge from the Lebanese October uprising. I was in Lebanon myself during the uprising and I've lived in Lebanon several times and studied there as well. But besides looking at Lebanon, I also look at, Bos at Bosnia and try to build a cross-regional, cross-country knowledge about these types of movements, because I believe they are important parallels to draw. For instance, parallels that evolve 
how to construct a new collective identity that is so strong that it can challenge the communal sectarian identities. There's the question about how to convince people that it makes sense to go against the system which is so entrenched. And there are questions that deal with clientelism, co-option, so various sorts of questions that we can apply to various contexts and draw lessons about similarities and differences. I know this is very broad. I'm also just uh, doing my PhD, uh, which is the first step in a longer process, I hope, of uncovering and understanding these kinds of movements. Yeah, I mean, it might be broad, but if we get too specific, then we're just going to end up spending hours talking about each other's PhDs. So I completely <laughs> uh, I understand where you're coming from. But these are quite fascinating conceptual arguments and quite strong indeed. I particularly like how you're trying to build a more cohesive model that you will be using to examine cases as such. So be it in Lebanon, be it in Bosnia and Herzegovina, these are quite interesting topics that you're engaged with. And uh, at this point, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been a really fun conversation. I really, I sincerely wish you all the best with your research. Thank you, Petrus, and thank you so much for inviting me to talk at your podcast. It's been a pleasure for me to share my experiences and views, and I also want to wish you the best of luck with the podcast. I think it's a really great initiative. Thank you so much.